Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the 30th anniversary of the discovery of Florida's amazing Windover archaeological site. As an archaeologist, you really are walking on cloud nine when you get dates back that are several thousand years older, and you start to get things lined up that that it does look like you'll be able to get the funding to actually do the excavation. We'll remember the fight to have a black soldier buried in Fort Pierce. That was a very tense period of time. All the news was focused here on Fort Pierce and why they would not let this soldier who gave his life for the freedom of be buried in the cemetery there. A profile of the late Florida folk singer Bobby Hicks and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. On Saturday, March 31st, a special event recognizing the 30th anniversary of the discovery of Florida's amazing Windover archaeological site will be held at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. A limited number of tickets are available for a private VIP reception at 5 p.m., followed by a free celebration at 7 p.m., open to the public. In 1982, a backhoe operator working at what would become the Windover Farms housing development in Titusville, Florida, uncovered a human skull. The bones of other individuals soon emerged from the peat bog. It would be determined that the ritualistically buried remains uncovered at Windover were between 7,000 and 8,000 years old, making them 3,200 years older than King Tut and 2,000 years older than Egypt's Great Pyramid. Dr. Rachel Wenz is author of the new book, Life and Death at Windover, Excavations of a 7,000-Year-Old Pond Cemetery. Windover's lead archaeologist, Dr. Glenn Doran, assembled a book of scientific papers about Windover 10 years ago, but Dr. Wentz's book is the first about Windover written for the general public. Well, this project I, I undertook because of the fact that there wasn't a book that was accessible to the public. Uh, Glenn Doran's book is fabulous. It really recounts all of the intensive research that's been done on the site, but it's highly technical, and I wanted a book that the general public could read and kind of get the excitement of the site's discovery, the astonishing finds that have been found within the pond, and all the science that we've we've gained by examining not only the skeletons from the pond, but aspects of the burials, the mortuary patterns, the botanicals, the textiles, the brain matter, all of these wonderful aspects that were preserved on this site because it was a wet site. The Windover site has been called one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the world because of the quality and quantity of the remains and artifacts found. 
the pH balance of the anaerobic peat bog allowed for amazing preservation. 91 of the ancient skulls uncovered had intact brain matter, allowing for DNA tests to determine familial relationships. Some of the oldest woven fabric in the world was used for burial shrouds. Rachel Wentz's new book about Wendover tells two stories, that of Florida's ancient people and the story of the people who discovered their remains. I wanted to frame it in a way that kind of recounted the personal involvement of each individual at the site. I didn't interview all of the people, but I interviewed some of the key players um, that were responsible for different aspects of the site and what it was like for them at the moment of discovery. Steve Vanderjack, the back co-operator who first saw the skeletal remains, what it was like when Glendoran first got on the site, when he saw that spoil pile littered with human remains and when they presented him with the first buckets full of, of skeletons. Um, I interviewed the photographer, Richard Brunk, who was uh, responsible for taking the beautiful photographs of the burials because those are part of the historic documents of the site's excavation. So all of these individuals and the 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 role they played in the site's excavation and, and what it was like for their personal experiences. So the first half of the book are the interviews and talking about all these different aspects of the site and these people's involvement. And then the back half kind of focuses on the research I've done over on the skeletons for the last 10 years, looking at aspects of health and pathology, um, incorporating the, the information from my master's thesis and from my dissertation, where I've exam been able to examine aspects of ancient health among Floridians because of the beautiful preservation of these skeletons. Dr. Glenn Doran led three excavations at the Windover site between 1984 and 1986. He recalls when he first heard about the site in 1982. Guy Spearman called Pat Hogan at FSU and said, you know, he was associated with a construction project down here and they had found human skeletal material and was there anybody interested in And Pat Hogan was at that time vice president and he called the anthropology department and said, I've got this guy down in Titusville who has found some human skeletal material and he wants to know if anybody over there is interested. And so the secretary had scribbled a little note, you know, on a, on a typical little yellow sticky and stuck it in my box and it said something to the effect of, uh, call, call Spearman skeletal material Titusville. And that was about the extent of it. And it really, everything fell into place after that. The Windover site would yield many spectacular discoveries, but Dr. Doran couldn't know that initially. It was certainly the nastiest looking place I'd probably ever seen. Uh, you know, there were a couple of long rows, spoil banks of peat, you know, decomposing in the summer sun, you know, the weft of, you know, rotting vegetation and sulfur wafting around. And uh, it, it really looked like nothing I had ever worked on before. But then as you walked around, you thought, my Lord, you know, there's actually incredibly well-preserved skeletal material in some of this peat. And, of course, then your mind starts racing with, okay, if, if we've got this much material out of these few, you know, bucket loads of, uh, you know, backhoe work, you know, then you start thinking, okay, what else is in that pond? You know, and from everything we could see and what we know about Florida archaeology, it was, it was an intentional burial area. And in most places, in most time periods, people place artifacts with their deceased as well. So not only do you have the opportunity for the, the simple the, the human biology part of the past, but you also have a, an, an incredible opportunity to capture materials that 
that go into these wet sites, in some cases they are they're literally things that you never ever see in a typical dry terrestrial site. So it, it opened up just an incredible number of, of possible windows and, and then you spend a couple of years trying to figure out how to maximize the information if you can figure out how to get the money and if you can figure out how to drain the water and there's about a thousand other ifs that you have to work your way through but it just all fell into place. Dr. Doran could quickly tell that the skeletons at Windover were very old, but even he was surprised when carbon dating confirmed that they were between 7,000 and 8,000 years old. One of the questions we had was, okay, there's no ceramic material in the peat materials that were scattered around. So that made you think that it's at least 2,000 to 3,000 years old. But there was nothing with the, the skeletal material that clearly you know, stated, uh, gave you an indication of how old it was, and that was something that we really had to resolve. Uh, and we actually went back to Guy Spearman uh, with EKS and explained the problem and explained the importance of, of really figuring out how old the material was. And so EKS, you know, paid for the first couple of radiocarbon dates, and they were, give or take, about 2,000 years older than what we had anticipated. I was guessing somewhere around five to 5,000, and it turns out they were about 7,000. So it was like, oh boy, you know, this is just you know, too good to be true. As an archeologist, you really are walking on cloud nine when you get dates back that are several thousand years older and you start to get things lined up that, that it does look like you'll be able to get the funding to actually do the excavation. Once funding was acquired to excavate the pond where the remains were discovered, some creative thinking was required to face unique challenges posed by the site. Well, the, the first thing you have to do with, with a site like Windover, specifically a wet site, is try to figure out how to control the water. And so we worked with, with Bill Tanner's construction crew and with EKS and with Thompson Pump and Manufacture to come up with a, a strategy to, to basically catch the water before it drained into this little permanent pond. Uh, and then once you do that, then you very gradually start to remove the, the surface layers, which we were pretty sure and, and confirmed ultimately that there really wasn't any archaeological material up in the, the top you know, meter to a meter and a half. And it's once you got below that level that you really started getting close to the skeletal layer, basically. And so then you, and what we did, we started working sort of in from the sides and you would expose each burial, then map it, plot it, photograph it, and then you know, remove it, take it to the lab, do the appropriate conservation procedures, and then just keep moving laterally across the site. Most archaeologists sort of start at the top and work down, but in our case we, were, we sort of go down to the level that you're interested in and then move laterally. And the, the whole goal is to you know, keep very, very close detailed track of where everything is so that you can really you know, put it all back together in a, in, think of a three-dimensional model is what you're dealing with. And that's what, what our goal was. You know, and not to miss anything and to, to understand the connections between the artifacts and the people and person one to person two so that you, you really do develop you know, over a series of, in this case, three years, you know, a, a pretty elaborate three-dimensional model. Nearly 200 skeletons at Windover were ritualistically buried in the same fetal position. Most were wrapped in woven fabric and many were buried with tools or other artifacts. About half of the people buried at Windover were children. Glenn Doran. You know, every society has a, a variety of, of sort of ways that they, they bury their loved ones, you know, the prescribed manner. 
And for some reason, and we really don't know why, uh, in central Florida from say 7,000 and maybe 8,000 to about 6,000 years ago, uh, people were put into little small uh, permanent ponds. Not a lot of deep water. You wade out to the edge of the pond and you know scrape back some of the loose peat and then place the, the individual there. And in some cases they were wrapped in sort of a, a, a fabric material, think of a burial cloth basically. Uh, and then in some cases the, they actually took stakes and would pin sometimes through the burial cloth, sometimes just sort of uh, on top of resting against it to hold the body into that peat bog. Uh, I do some forensic work and so we have a, a pretty good understanding now about decomposition processes and, and what goes on. And without the stakes, I think the bodies would, have, would literally have floated to the surface. So this was a, the staking process was important in keeping them down. And like we said earlier, most of the time uh, people have a tradition of burying items that were no doubt important to them, important to the community, important to the family with the people that they placed in the bog. And so you get this, this double set of information, you know, the, the skeletal biology, what it was like to, to be alive seven and eight thousand years ago, health and age and, and uh, sex, these kinds of issues and pathologies. But you also get that coupled with the artifact inventory. Uh, one of the other things that is, is certainly interesting in the specifics for the site, but also in a broader context, is we got really incredible detailed information about how the prehistoric environment has changed in Florida, really for the last 11,000 years. Uh, so from the close of the Pleistocene, the end of the Ice Age, all the way up to you know, really the, the launch of, of you know, satellites, you've got it captured right there in this little peat bog. Fascinating artifacts were discovered at Windover, such as a bottle gourd and spear throwers known as atlatls, but the most amazing discoveries were the remarkably well-preserved skeletons. Dr. Rachel Wenz was not at the Windover dig, but she became a bioarchaeologist studying the Windover skeletons. When the site was excavated back in the 80s, I was just out of high school, so I wasn't even an archaeologist back then. I came to Florida State in 2001, so it was many years later. But the remains are housed there, and I trained on, under Dr. Glenn Doran, got my master's and my Ph.D. under his direction, and worked for him the entire time. So I had access to these wonderful skeletons. So yes, I trained as a bioarchaeologist on these remains, and they've continued to be the focus of my research to today. So I've spent the the last 10 years working on them. Dr. Rachel Wenz is author of the new book, Life and Death at Windover, Excavations of a 7,000-Year-Old Pond Cemetery, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. A book release party and celebration of the 30th anniversary of the discovery of the Windover site will be held March 31st at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Limited tickets are available for a special VIP reception beginning at 5 p.m. For details, go to myfloridahistory.org. Now you just keep on a betting that the dice don't pass. This one are gonna catch you for you. Yes, 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 rolling bone. Yes, rolling bone. Now you just rolling bone. Don't you?
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. To keep up to date about special history-related events and activities, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Darcy McMahon, exhibits director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. My first archaeological excavation in St. Augustine was in a convent courtyard, part of a grad school project with archaeologist Kathleen Deegan. We first removed the concrete pavement, then carefully peeled back the layers of history to find a large circle of dark soil that proved to be a well. Once lined with wooden barrels, there was nothing left but the dark soil that later filled the well, identifiable only by contrast to the lighter soils around it. For an archaeologist, these differences in dirt color are often the only clues to the past. That well turned out to mark the boundary of the early settlement. Today, when I wander St. Augustine's streets, I think about that well and its dark soil and about how fragile the remains of the past really are. St. Augustine has a local ordinance to protect and study what lies underground. And in a place like Florida, where growth has destroyed so much of our history, that says a lot. Long live St. Augustine's colonial dirt. Darcy McMahon is exhibits director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers. Pondexter Williams was an African-American soldier killed in Vietnam in 1970. As Janie Gould explains, he was denied burial in Fort Pierce until the courts and a new lawyer intervened. St. Lucie County's first black judge, Ralph Flowers, came to Fort Pierce in 1959 to become the band director at Lincoln Park High School. He was in the Army at the time and drove down from Fort Knox, Kentucky, to interview with the school principal, Leroy Floyd. I came down, I guess, Avenue D, and I had to come down some dirt roads, and I had a brand new car. It was a Fairlane 500 Ford. That was a horrendous trip. When I arrived at Mr. Floyd's house, you couldn't tell that I even owned a car. Pretty muddy. It had been raining, and the roads were all dirt. That's absolutely right. When I was traveling on a dirt road, I said that I don't know what I got myself into here, and I'm only going to stay here for one year. I lived with C.A. Moore's, Chester Moore, on the corner of 13th Street and Avenue D. He was a generation ahead of you. He taught here at one time, and then you were telling me something happened. From what I understand, he was somewhat blackballed here because of his political ideas. He was able to get a job up in Indian River County, in which he rode a bike every morning to and fro. This would have been to Gifford, right? Yes, Gifford High School. You said he got involved in political activities in St. Lucie County. I think it was over-registering black people to vote. It was not fashionable doing that time for that to happen. 
he rode his bike 20 miles each way. It would rain, and he had to walk with his bike sometimes. He had to get up about 3 or 4 o'clock in order to uh, get to school on time. He said that he was possibly one of the first ones to reach the school. Even though he came from the farthest, did he ever get to work in St. Lucie County again? No, he never did. When I arrived here, he had retired. Much later, the school board named a new elementary school after Moore. Ralph Flowers later decided to go to law school. I'd always wanted to be a band director. I'd always wanted to learn how to fly a plane, and I also wanted to be a lawyer. I was able to get to Florida and m in law school. Ralph Flowers had roots in Fort Pierce by this time, so when he graduated, he came back to practice law. His second case was the landmark legal battle to desegregate St. Lucie County schools. His first case out of law school made headlines around the world. An Army private from Fort Pierce named Pondexter Williams was killed in Vietnam in 1970. He was black and was refused burial in an all-white cemetery. Ultimately, a federal judge ordered that he be buried at Hillcrest Memorial Gardens. That was a very tense period of time. All the new was focused here on Fort Pierce and why they would not let this soldier who gave his life for the freedom of be buried in the cemetery there. When you came here, it was complete segregation. It was 1959. I remember uh, having to go to the back door upstairs at the theater, which I never did. And I recall having to go down to some of the back holes in the restaurants. Back holes? They had a wonder that black people had to go to. I remember seeing them going there, but I never did. I'd been in service. The service was totally desegregated, and I did not believe that I had to spend my money to be degraded like that. What's the highlight of your career? What would you say? Getting Pondexter Williams buried, number one. Getting the school system desegregated without a lot of problems was number two. And I guess being accepted by the legal community, they treated me quite well. You mentioned that you had always wanted to be a band director and always wanted to be a lawyer and always wanted to fly a plane. Did you ever fly a plane? When I went to the Army, I applied to flight school and I was accepted. I've been able to accomplish all of those. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Bill Dudley has this remembrance of Florida folk singer and outspoken critic Bobby Hicks. It was down near Coolista, John Carver was born. By the age of 13, he's working the cane. When he died in December 2007, Bobby Hicks left behind only one album, Florida and the Need to Say More, recorded in the late 80s. But for many who remember his appearances at the Florida Folk Festival and other venues around the state, the songs were often overshadowed by the politics and a running commentary on the state of the state. And you see those big shrimp in there? They were farm-raised in Ecuador and Thailand. Yeah, you remember my friends over here on the coast that are losing their houses and everything because they can't get $1.70 a pound for their shrimp at Dockside. I'm not talking about any corporation people. I'm talking about just some good people been shrimping for about four generations in this state. I didn't really like him when I first met him, as most people don't. I could tell you all kinds of stories about the first meeting of Bobby Hicks with somebody. A close friend, freelance writer, and musician Pete Gallagher. He and Hicks co-hosted the Florida Folk Show on community radio WMNF in Tampa beginning in 2004. It's just because he, he was so abrasive, and, uh, and also he was always so uh, brutally honest. And to be confronted with a brutally honest person makes people uncomfortable. 
But then, then again, that's what endeared me to him. He had a persona, and that's true. But I don't mean that he was false or fake in any way. St. Leo University philosophy professor and longtime Florida folk performer Ernie Williams. I believe that he genuinely loved this land, and he was willing to be abrasive, to be opinionated, and to take the heat for, and by this land, of course, I mean the land of flowers. Well, they cut down the trees and the mangrove keys And they killed off the coral and the old manatees And they put parking lots where the beach used to be And it's damn sure killing me We have a number of people who have access to grind in their songs. They're very topical songwriters, which, of course, has been true in American folk music since the time of Woody Guthrie, and I'm sure before that. The role of the troubadour as it has evolved, from the bringer of the news to the bringer of the opinion, interpreter, the person who takes the place of old broadsides, where somebody has something to say and they just say it right out. And their purpose is to convince and to sway. And that certainly was Bobby's purpose. What have we left for the ones that we're leaving? Perhaps some old memories they won't be believing. So maybe some snapshots that'll start them into grieving. Oh, the swanee that flows deep in our heart. If you can put into people's minds what could happen or what is happening in a three or four verse song, an issue that is volumes and volumes long, I mean, you've, you've done a great thing because the American public, the citizens, the man on the street, they don't have time to read all the volumes. If you're a sincere songwriter and you're, you're writing about, about these issues, it can be very powerful. Bobby Hicks, especially over the years, has attracted a legion of people into, into environmental protection and, and cultural preservation. I guess I'm a little bit of everything Seen so many flags unfurled Bobby Hicks was a native who claimed his ancestors had been here since 1791. He was fond of saying that things never got so bad he had to leave his home. In recent years, newspaper writers characterized him as the radical cracker or the hot-tempered troubadour, but his ranting and raving couldn't obscure the beauty of his lyrics and melodies. Even before his death at age 54, people have suggested his signature song, I'm Florida, be adopted as the new state song, although Hicks himself was opposed to the idea. I'm the ghost of a Spaniard at the fountain of you, an old Augustine by the sea. Down around Brighton, I'm a Seminole Indian who somehow through it all still walks free. Bobby pulled no punches, and many of us thought that Bobby's opinions were right on, that he was willing to stand up for Florida because he was, he was truly in love with Florida. You run into a guy like Bobby Hicks who's, when you hear his music, that's Florida folk music. That's Florida folk music. There's no denying it. Water's once clear as a swimming pool Though fewer than there used to be Though it'll never be like yesterday I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahum.org. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Thank you.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.